Let me introduce you to a newest member of our family. You may have met him already. This is Milo. Um, Milo's cute. Uh, he knows it, which is part of the problem. He knows that. Uh, he's also a very smart dog. He recently graduated from puppy school, I'll, I'll have you know, and he was a salutatorian. So I think that means my retirement fund is set. I think that's what that means. Very smart dog. The problem with Milo is not that he's not cute. It's not that he's not smart. The problem is he's a sinful little puppy. That's the problem. Uh, he is convinced that everything is about him. He's a narcissist by every definition. Everything is about him. So anything hard and plasticky, he thinks is his chew toy. Now he has chew toys. We bought him more chew toys than any one animal ought to have, but he still thinks everything in the house is for his chew enjoyment. So like, uh, remote controls, for instance, uh, we, we have two televisions in our house, uh, up one upstairs, one downstairs, there's uh, two remote Roku remotes for each of the televisions. We lost one of the remotes years ago, so we only had three. So Milo systematically chewed up all three remote controls. And then this is true. He found the fourth remote control and then destroyed that one as well. Uh, that's, that's how Milo works. Uh, I'm like plastic hangers. He loves the plastic hangers. He's destroyed more hangers in the last couple of months than any, like, my goodness. Uh, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in grad school right now, so I'm taking a philosophy course. And I, I have this book here from Alvin Plantiga, uh, which is like a classic in philosophy. And uh, so, you know, most dogs aren't into philosophy. Milo is just eats it up. You give Milo a philosophy, and he just eats it up. He just loves uh, Plantiga. It's like he digests chunks of Plantiga. Um, he just thinks it's great. Like, like Milo is—he's a sinful little dog. That's the problem. He, he thinks the whole world really is about, really is about him. Uh, and, and so he just, he controls everything. So I, I got to thinking, I, he really is a narcissist. So one day I was Googling uh, 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 narcissistic definition to make sure I was even saying this the right way. And as I typed in narcissistic definition, before I got definition typed in, you know, Google will give you top results of what they think you're going to type. It assumed I was typing narcissistic personality disorder. And I thought that may be interesting. Like that may be what my dog has is the narcissistic personality. So I searched for narcissistic personality disorder and the top result came from this great veterinary clinic up in, up in Rochester, Minnesota, where they help puppies get over themselves, uh, Mayo Clinic. You may have heard of this veterinary clinic. Uh, and so the, their definition of narcissistic personality disorder, it says an unreasonably high sense of their own importance, check, and they need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them, check, check. This is my dog. He has narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, you've heard it here from Mayo right off, right off the top. Now, let's be honest, if you've ever had a puppy, you know that every puppy has narcissistic personality disorder. That's what puppies do. In fact, if you've ever had a toddler in your house, they also have narcissistic personality disorder for the first several years of their life. Any, anybody have a toddler in their house in the last couple of years? Kid, grandkid, nephew, niece, no toddlers in Spring Hill. Fantastic. Well, if you had had one of those, uh, I promise you, they're, they are narcissists, every one of them. They think the world revolves around them. That's what a narcissist is. And they think everything in the life and in the house is for their enjoyment. Now, if you're raising a toddler, which apparently none of you are, uh, number one, it gets easier. So that's encouragement. I've raised four kids. Uh, this gets easier. Number two, if you don't break them of that, not only will every teacher that they ever have hate you for not breaking them of that, uh, but they're going to be miserable later in life. 
Because every so often, a toddler will sneak through their toddler years and remain a narcissist all the way through to adulthood, and they don't grow up, but their body gets too big to be in preschool, and so they continue to think the whole world revolves around them, they just do it in a bigger body, and it's not pretty. They make the world a worse place, and, and, the, and, and they're miserable, because that doesn't satisfy anybody. Now, what does this have to do with the series? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Stick with me. If, if, you, if I lose you, you'll have to come to ask me afterwards. That'll be fine. Uh, if you, it, grab your Bible at this point. Turn to Luke chapter 12. I want, to, I want to set this up for you. Luke chapter 12. It's page 711 if you're using these Bibles here. I'm actually going to have you... I don't know that I've ever done this in almost 20 years of being at Wellspring. I'm going to have you turn to two different passages this morning. It's because I want you to see it for yourself and the context um, so keep your Bible out after we get out of Luke 12. We'll be, turn to that as well. But Luke chapter 12, page 711. This is a story out of the life of Jesus. <clears throat> and it starts there, kind of the middle of the page, verse 13, and says, Someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You can tell that's a loaded question if you're in front of a crowd. And Jesus replied, Man who appointed me judge or arbiter between you, and then he changes the audience. He stops talking to the man and starts talking to the crowd. It says, then he says to them, do you see that? He, he, he switches the conversation from talking to this man about the inheritance to talking to the larger crowd. And, and parenthetically, he's talking then to us. So it's important that we catch, catch the experience because he's not now talking to the guy. He's now talking to all of us. He says, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He senses that the guy in the crowd was fighting over the inheritance, not because he wanted grandma's knickknacks, not because he wanted papa's pocket knives or whatever it is that maybe they had, but, but because he was tempted by greed. And so he, he uses it as an opportunity not just to tell this guy, watch out about greed, but he says that to them, like watch out for greed because all of us, if we're honest, are tempted by greed. I am tempted by greed. And I'm not, I'm not going to ask you because I couldn't get you to raise your hand about toddlers, but you're tempted by greed too. Like all of us are tempted by greed, if we're honest. So he says, watch out. Verse 16, and then he told them this parable to drive home that point. It says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So the guy in the crowd, the inheritance guy, gets a little bit of extra we, it's the inheritance. We don't know if it's a big extra or a little bit extra. Maybe a big inheritance, small inheritance. We don't know. But he gets a little bit extra. And so he tells a story about a guy who has some extra, a farmer who's used to a certain size crop, but this year he gets an extra crop, a bigger crop. And he's, he's applying that story. Verse 18 says, I, I don't know what to do. So this is what I'll do. 18. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and then I'll store all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grains laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you conscientious financial planner. <laughs> Wait, that's, that's not what it, that, that's what I wrote in the Bible. That's not, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says God called him a fool. Now, you don't. You don't get the audience reaction in Scripture, like, like Luke doesn't record that. But I'm guessing there's a little bit of shock and awe at this point. There may have been a gasp at this point. Because the crowd wouldn't have expected God to condemn this guy or to call him a fool. The audience would have expected God to commend him for his financial success. 
He, he had planned it so well that he was building bigger barns to store more grain, to help, you know, to have more stuff for his family. It would have commended him. And the reason we think that, the, that God would do that, the reason the crowd would think God would do that is because that's what we would do. And God always does things the way we would do, right? I mean, that's just how we think. So, but instead, God doesn't call him a financial success. God calls him a fool. Look at verse 20. God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. This man was a classic narcissist because he thought all of his extra was for his disposal. All of his wealth, all of his abundance, all of the extra crop was for him That's what it means to be a narcissist. And like every narcissist you've ever met, he was never going to be satisfied. He was going to be miserable until he broke himself of that nasty mindset that says, everything is for me. And God says he's a fool because God knows what we could never know about another person, that this man's time is running short and he's almost out. And he's right there at the end of his life, right there on the verge of eternity, and he's still pursuing more. He's still not satisfied with what God has given him. He's in his last days, and he's still only thinking about himself. And God says that's foolish. Now, I think we could summarize Jesus' sentiment here this way. It is foolish to assume that all you have is only for you. He didn't say those words, but I think that's what he's saying. It's foolish to assume that all you have is only for you. Jesus says in verse 21 that this is how it will be. How's, how's that? What is this? How is, well, it's, it's foolish. It's selfish. It's narcissistic. It's miserable. It's un, unsatisfied. That's how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now, notice he never says that storing up things for yourself is bad. He never says savings accounts bad, retirement funds are bad. He never says that kind of stuff's bad. He never says having extra is bad. Doesn't say any of that. It's just when he thought all of it was for him, that was what was bad because it's foolish to assume that all you have is only for you. Now I had you turn to this passage for two reasons. One because I wanted to see you to see it for yourself. I could have put it on the screen, but. Sometimes pastors pull the wool over people's eyes, especially around financial topics. And I I wanted you to know that's not what I was doing. But two, I wanted you to notice the context. Because the next part, we finished at 21, the next part, the next section says, Then, in response to that, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, in response to this story, I tell you, do not worry. And he goes on to talk about worry. You see that there in verse 22? This is a backwards principle in God's economy. That living life as if everything is only for you actually leads to more worry. But living life with open-handed generosity actually is an antidote for worry. And that makes sense if you think about it. I mean, it's backwards on the surface, but it makes sense if you think about it. Because if everything's about me, then that means all the weight, all the responsibility, all the pressure to make everything work is all on my shoulders. But if I'm living life believing God and what he says that he'll provide for me. Do you see that in verse 24? He says he's going to provide for me. And if I live life believing God when he says he's going to provide for me, then I don't carry all the weight and all the responsibility and all the pressure alone. He carries it with me. And that's a lot lighter load. This open-handed generosity is, is huge in Scripture. And I would suggest to you that when we don't live this way, 
that it's a problem for the world, and sometimes that's where our mind goes first. Like there's so many needs in the world that if we were all a little more generous, we could really fix some stuff. Sometimes we think they're first, but the folks of today's message is not about that. That's all true. But the folks of today's message is we'll pay the price for not living this way personally. And in keeping with the series, I'm telling you, it's going to make you hangry. And you know this to be true. Let me prove it to you. Take the Bible off the table for a second. Think about the, the miserly, selfish, self-centered people, narcissistic people in your life. Every one of them is miserable. They spend their life trying to do for themselves, only about themselves, and yet they're miserable for it. And then consider, on the flip side, people that you know live life open-handedly with generous mindsets and hearts. Whether they're wealthy or poor, every one of them's happy. Isn't that true? I mean, it's, just, it's backwards from what you would assume it would be. Let me say it a different way. You, you've seen lots of movies where the narcissistic, selfish, self-absorbed person may have a lot of money, may have a very successful career, but at some point he has a key moment where he realizes that's not right and he repents of that mindset and lives the last part of his life with open-handed generosity and he's happy. You've seen lots of movies like that. You have never once seen a movie where the guy is open-handed and generous all through his life, gets towards the end of his life and goes, man, I should have been self-centered all along, repents of his open-handedness, becomes selfish and miserly and lives life happily. You've never seen that movie. Because we know that's not true. We know what Jesus said is right. It's more blessed to give than receive. We know that, but we have to fight against the tension in our own heart because we want to have everything be about us. Because I'm tempted by greed, just like you are. And I want it to be all about not just me. I mean, I know there's pushback right now. You're saying, well, I don't spend anything on me. I spend it on my kids. I spend it on my family. I spend it on my... It's all about my family, my kids, my life, my home, my stuff. I want it to all be about me. Now, some of you are new to Wellspring, and you're thinking, oh, good, I came on the financial message. We don't, we don't, yes, you did, you got lucky. We don't talk about money very often. Don't talk about near, near as much as Jesus does, in fact. But we're talking about today because you just got lucky. We're talking about because it it's really important. I believe one of the greatest disasters in church history, maybe in history, period, is the prosperity gospel movement. And let me explain why I believe that. When pastors tell their desperate audiences that God wants them to be rich, and if they'll give them a certain amount of money, that God will make them prosperous, and then they fly off in their private jet to the next desperate audience to tell them the same thing, and they move from place to place. I think that's one of the greatest disasters in, in church history. I actually talked to a guy, one of my friends in between services, after I, he was here the first hour, and he said uh, that he was at a church, or his friend was at a church, something, anyway, where the pastor there was a steeple on the roof of the church and the pastor got up on the roof and was on the steeple and said that God had told him to stay there until they bought him a Cadillac. And I was like, why didn't we put a steeple on this building? I don't know why, like that's a missed opportunity. Why didn't we do that? I, I think it's one of the greatest disasters in church history, not because of those people. God will take care of those people. God will take care of those leaders. God will handle that. I think it's a disaster because it makes the rest of us shy away from clear biblical teaching. And when the church shies away from clear biblical teaching on any topic, we get hangry congregations because we don't want to sound like that guy. We don't want to sound like that person who does it for self-centered reasons. Let me just give you a taste of it. First Timothy chapter 6 says, false teachers think that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's not true. So if anybody tells you that, they're not speaking for God, they're a false teacher, according to Paul in First Timothy. 
But the Bible does have a lot to say about generosity, and the Bible has a lot to say about God's response to our generosity. Let me just give you a a snippet. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. You're going to be tempted to do that. That's not the point. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. Store up instead treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust, moth, moth and vermin do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the point of a, a, a life that lives, is lived well is not storing up here, it's storing up there. That keeps your heart right. Okay, so, so you may be asking, well, how do I do that? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. The, the Bible tells us. First Timothy 6 says, command those who are rich... In this present world, if you look at the context, that means they have more than just the basic needs for today, food, clothing for today. That's probably, if not all of us, very close. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. If you've lived in the economy the last 20 years and seen the recessions and the changes and things, you know that's true. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. We store up treasures in heaven when we use our money to do good here. When we're being rich, not just according to the banker, but according to good deeds. When we live generously, when we're willing to share. And that verse continues in verse 19 by saying, In this way, by doing those things, they, the ones with extra, will lay up for themselves treasures as a firm foundation for the coming age in heaven so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. When you live that way, open-handed generosity, you're going to have a firm foundation in this life, which is great because the economy is so uncertain, but you're also going to take hold of life, which is really life now. You're living with a heavenly mindset, but you're going to live better today. And this topic fits in the series Because if we're not living generously with what God has provided us, we run a terrible risk of having spiritual hanger from it. Or we have emotional or relational problems because we're not doing things as God would have us. It not only hurts others because we kept all the money God gave us for ourselves, it hurts us because we kept all the money God gave us and only for ourselves. Because Jesus said it's foolish to assume that all we have is only for us. Now let me settle something here that probably you all know. This is probably not going to be a surprise, but I, just w- I want to establish it and make it clear. God does not need any of our money. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need my money. Let me make, sh- let me make sure I convince you of that. The Bible says that God made everything, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, Psalms 24 says. That means that God made every diamond in every mine and on every finger, on every necklace. They're all gods. And he could create more if he needed them because he created all the ones we've ever found. God crafted all the gold and silver and platinum that we've ever dug up out of the ground. He he created every drop of oil that we've ever burned. And the new technologies that will be wealthy in the future that we don't yet know about, he made all of that too. God doesn't need our money. So that's one truth. The problem is, the contention is, God doesn't need our money, but God talks about us giving our money a lot. And some pastors use that for self-centered reasons, and God hates that. And some people misunderstand this and think the church is all about money, and they get offended and walk away from God, and God hates that. So if that's true, if that tension is real, 
that God doesn't need our money, and yet a lot of bad things happen from the way the mouth of the Bible talks about money, then why did God talk about money so much? Either he was clueless and didn't know what was going to happen, which is bad theology, don't, don't go with option one, or he did it for another important reason. He didn't do it because he needs our money. He did it because he doesn't want us to be hangry. And he knows money will do that to you. Money will cause emotional and relational problems if we don't get it in check. I think that's it. In fact, let me show you from another place. So if you have your Bibles there, this is, this is the second part I want to look at. Second Corinthians 8 is where I want us to look. Page 791. 2 Corinthians 8. I could have put this on the screen. I wanted to look at it in person so we could, A, you could see the context. B, you know I'm not taking it out of context. I'm not making it up. I want you to see it. 2 Corinthians 8, if you, if you look at in, in, your, in these Bibles that are in your seats, the one you have, if you have one of your own, it may, the titles, the headings may be a little different. Scholars have added those just to make it easy to look at things in the Bible. But in this Bible, the heading says the collection for the Lord's people. Do you see that there in 2 Corinthians 8? Your heading may say something a little different, but it's along the same lines. Paul talks there about how God um, wanted them to collect money a financial gift from the Corinthian church to help out some other Christians who were in need. You see that there? And then you skip on down in the next page to verse 16. The heading says, Titus sent to receive the collection. Now, this is kind of funny to me. Maybe it shouldn't be funny. But it's like Paul saying in a letter, there's no back and forth. It's all, I mean, it takes a long time in those days to send a letter. So he sends a letter saying, hey, I'm going to send a collection and then the next thing he says is, oh, by the way, I'm going to send Titus to collect that collection. He didn't wait for them to agree to it. He didn't wait for them to be okay with it. It's kind of a mafia feel, like I'm going to send my guy to get your money. Like It's a little bit heavy-handed a little bit there. And then if you skip on down, uh, chapter 9 continues that conversation. And then in verse 6, he changes topics completely and begins to talk to them about being generous. The Bible talks about money far more than we do. Because God knows there's reasons for it. Now all that was context to get us to verse 6 of chapter 9. So look there with me. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. This is the sowing and reaping context that we've talked about for a few weeks now. Verse 7 says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This should, giving should never come from pressure. Giving should never come from guilt or obligation. It should always be a cheerful thing. That's the way we've always approached it at Wellspring. If you sense anything other than that from me, you're, you're, I think you're misunderstanding me, but, but wait, till you can, wait till you can give generously and be happy about it. Don't, don't feel any pressure from me. Along those lines. Verse 8 says, and, and God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God's going to take care of you. As it's written, they have scattered, freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. And now God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed. He's going to take care of you, He's going to enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now this is a little complicated. Paul sometimes writes a little bit 
uh, hairy. So let me, let me simplify this out. And because I'm an artist, I'm going to use some pictures that will help uh, make this clear. So we've got us and God, right? You and God, just you and God doing your thing. And God provides everything you need. This is true whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing. This is true if you're a good person or a bad person. This is true if you're generous or if you're miserly. God provides you with everything you need. Jesus said God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So this is, this is how life works. God provides for you. But he calls us to cheerfully give some money to the church, the family of God. And together, the church helps other people. Maybe that's through tangible things like food. Yesterday, a group of us met here at the church and we packed jetpacks to finish up the school year. A thousand jetpacks to go to a thousand kids' backpacks on the weekend to get them through uh, a weekend where they don't have food. And it, this year, this school year, Wellspring, the family of God here at Wellspring, will spend about $40,000 on jetpack food. If Murray County Schools came to you, Williams County Schools came to you and said, hey, we have a, a jetpack need in these three schools, can you write $40,000? Like, you'd be like, hey, I can't do that. But together, with the money that's come in, we, we provide that need. Sometimes it's physical and tangible like things like food. Sometimes it's spiritual things like uh, teaching kids or inspiring teenagers or loving people through difficult times or providing counsel or support or encouragement or prayer. It's all kinds of things that the church does. But the church takes those gifts and helps other people with those gifts. And when they do, those people say thanks to God. So there's a spiritual thing that happens between them and God, sometimes helping people come to faith in Christ. And that person's heart in their prayers also goes out to the donor, even though they don't know who gives what. When you see that cycle, it's a beautiful picture. And that cycle is powerful for the recipient because the church can do things together that we could never do alone. Again, if Murray County Schools, Williams County Schools said, we have some kids who need some food on the weekend, you can never provide that. If you said, hey, we have well over 100 teenagers coming every Wednesday night, we need you guys to... We need you, family, to fix that by yourself. Just you and your spouse and your kids. Like, you can't provide for them. And we have all these kids coming on Sunday morning. Like, there's things that the church can do together that we could never do alone. But when we work together, it's an amazing process for the recipient. But it's also an amazing process for the giver. Because when I, when I give, whether it's finances or time or prayer or energy or support, when I give to the church, when you give to the church, when I, what happens is every time God does something good, we're a part of that. And we're part of this cycle. So every time somebody comes up out of the baptistry, we're all a part of that. If we've given of our energy or time or money or prayers or support, we're all part of that. Every time a kid gets loved in the name of Jesus, every time a, a teen has an anchor placed in their soul by loving adults who are seeing them through difficult times, every time somebody from a difficult family situation when it's kid, student, adult comes to this building and finds a family here who will love them through their mess, and you are helping with that. You're part of that. Whether you know that family or not, you're part of that. Because together, we, we help people, and then those prayers go to God, and the, the love goes back to each of us. It's a powerful cycle. The cycle is powerful for the recipient, and it's powerful for the giver. So my question is, well, then how much should we give away? I mean, we just read we should give what we've decided in our heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. So that's the baseline. You should never give out of obligation or guilt or those kind of things. But if this cycle is designed to help people in need, and there's so much need, far more than we could ever fix on our own, and if this cycle is also designed to help us, 
break things inside of us that are hard to see inside of us, then how much should we give? Like, how much should we keep when God gives us things? The reality, let's talk about what's real for a minute, what's, what's happening currently. Study after study, year after year, asks American Christians, followers of Jesus who live in America, how much do you give to charitable causes, churches, etc.? And the average American Christian, year after year, study after study, spends about 98% of their income on themselves, on their family, on their needs, on their wants. 98%-ish. And I would say the average American Christian is more hangry than they want to admit. And I think there's a connection. So let me ask you again. What's the, what's the objective standard of what we should give away? We need a standard. This is too personal, too subjective, too much opportunity for us to talk ourselves into things. Well, the scriptural mandate that Jesus certainly would have lived by as a first century Jew was the tithe, 10% of his income. Jesus would have not only lived by that standard, he endorsed the standard in Matthew 23, and he never rejected it elsewhere. Now, I don't think the tithe is a law now. He didn't, he didn't talk about it all the time, because I don't think it's designed to be a law. But I think it's still the right standard. I think it's still the standard Amy and I choose to live by. Because none of us will look in the mirror and say, I'm clearly greedy. I'm clearly a narcissist who think it's all about me. You've got to have some sort of standard that holds you in check. So I don't think you have to be legalistic about it, but I think you should compare your level of generosity to the generosity that Jesus would have lived by, and that would have been the tithe. I think it's a helpful standard to, to look at, to see if you're doing things the right way. Because we're all tempted by greed. We're all tempted to think everything I've been given is for my disposal. I'm tempted that way. And so if you're wondering how your standard of generosity measures up to God's, just check the tithe. Makes it, makes it simple math. Amy and I used to live in a wealthy suburb of the city of Indianapolis. And uh, there was a gentleman who lived in that community who was the CEO of a Fortune 100 company in downtown Indianapolis. And he would fly, commute to his office by helicopter. And his company justified the expense because they said it was cost-effective versus him sitting in traffic because his salary was $1 million per week. So it saved them money to not have him sitting in traffic. They took him by helicopter. Now, I want you to sink in there for a minute, $1 million a week. I, I used to think, I was a youth minister just starting out. I didn't have two dimes rubbed together. I would think, if he just gave me like one day of his salary, like one morning, you know, one morning is like hundred grand. But if he just gave me one morning of his salary, that's all I would need every. I'd, I would fix so many things. I mean, do you ever do that? Do you ever hear a big number and think, what would I do with that? Like I read online uh, recently that Disney paid Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback from the Kansas City Chiefs who just won the Super Bowl, they paid him $5 million to go on television and say that since they won the Super Bowl, now he's going to Disney. $5 million for that one little spiel. Last time I went to Disney, I think it cost me $5 million, and they're paying him $5 million to say he's going to go. I mean, like what would you do if he gave you that? If he said, I got plenty of money. I'm just going to get, Andy, I'm going to give you the $5 million. Do whatever you want to, whatever your family needs. What would you do with that? Let's take it up a notch again. Amy and I have this weird tradition. Maybe you do the same thing. Uh, we, we will buy, when the Powerball lotto gets to like some insane number, we'll sometimes buy a ticket. Now, don't judge me. I don't have a gambling problem. I'm not going to waste my time for like $100 million or something. But like, if it's going to affect my lifestyle, <laughs> if it's a big enough number that it would change some things in my life, then I throw my money away and buy a lottery ticket, right? And sometimes we, we, we will talk 
the two of us about, you know, what would we do if we actually won that? Uh, like $800 million or something. What would we do if we won a billion dollars? Like, do you ever do that? Am I the only one who weird? Like, I think about that kind of stuff sometimes. Let me go up one more time. What would you do if you had all of God's money? Every diamond, every ounce of gold, silver, platinum, every drop of oil, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What would you do if you had all of God's money? Every piece of land, he created it. Every ocean, every traffic way, you had everything. It's all yours. What would you do if you had God-sized money? I don't know what I would do, but I know what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't be coming to Spring Hill, Tennessee, hat in hand, begging me for a couple dollars. God doesn't need my money. But as a good father... He knows that if he lets me grow up thinking everything that he gives me is all for me, I'm going to be a greedy narcissist who's miserable and has no purpose in his life. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be self-centered. I'm going to be consumed with what I want and what I think I need. I'm going to be miserable. And he knows that as a good father. And he wants so much more for my life than that. And as a pastor, I see so many families chasing their tail, trying to live up to their the level of spending. And I want more for you than that. So I'm willing to have the awkward conversation that we're having right now. I'm willing to get ignored in the lobby because anytime you talk about sex or money, no one wants to talk to me. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to get a few concerned emails from people who think I misspoke or took something out of context. I'm willing to do that because the pathway to a fulfilled life involves us having this conversation, even though we don't want to be that guy who uses this to line his pockets. I said a minute ago that Jesus lived by the tithe. And I think that's probably true. But Jesus really did more than that. The Bible says that Jesus lived in heaven prior to coming here. And when John got a glimpse of heaven and used words he understood, he described heaven as having golden streets and mansions and jewels and all this amazing stuff. And Jesus wasn't just a regular old citizen of heaven. Jesus was the prince. He was the, the king. He was in the, in the throne room of God. So he would have had the best of the best of the best. And he left all of that, not just to come to earth, but to come to earth and live a impoverished life. The Bible's clear his parents didn't have enough money, and so they would have struggled week after week to have enough to put food on the table. And then he became, his dad died somewhere along the line. We don't know exactly when. Probably had to take care of his mom. And then he became a carpenter, a builder, very likely a stonemason of those days. So he worked with his hands. Here's the king of glory working with his hands, building stuff out of, out of wood and, and stone. And then he, he goes from being a builder, a carpenter, to being a, a, a homeless prophet, to being a martyr. And it's all for you. The Bible says that Jesus laid down his riches so through his poverty we might become rich. And he doesn't mean lots of money. He means that we might have access to God himself. That the blood of Jesus would cover our sins. And we all have a bunch of them. And we 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 debate sometimes in Christian circles about how much is the right amount to give. Jesus gave all of it, 100% of his life for us. And then he asks us to follow him and live our whole life focused on what he thinks is most important, focused on bringing the kingdom of God here. And along the way, he says, if you live like I'm calling you to live, it's upside down, but you'll worry less, you'll have more purpose, you won't be so self-centered. Like my way's really better if you just choose to trust me in that.
But I would say to you, I have a better offer than that for some of you. If you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Christ or you're living as if he's not real, maybe you're distracted with things, maybe you're following uh, directions or worries that you know have gotten you away from where God wants you. Maybe there's sin in your life that you know you need to repent of. I would just encourage you to ignore everything I've set up till right now and choose right now to put Jesus at the center of your life. We're going to sing, come to the altar in just a minute. I, I, I would ask you to, to do that, like at least in your mind, if you want to come physically, but come and, and say to God, God, everything is yours. My heart is yours. My, my sinful habits are yours. My, my lifestyle is yours. My choices are yours. Everything's yours, God. And God will meet you there. And the blood that Jesus paid so desperately for will cleanse you of all of it. Why don't you bow your head and pray with me. Dear Lord, we so desperately want you in our life. We so desperately want you in our neighbor's life, in our family's life, in our friend's life. We trust that your way, God, is better than any other way we'll pursue. Every other thing we chase, your way is better. Life with you is better. A glimpse of your son is better. So God, I pray that you would do whatever you need to do with us and our families as we're thinking through financial stuff. But God, for just a moment, I, I would ask that you would help us to focus just on your son who gave all for us. And in this moment, we have purpose to give all to him. Whatever that is that you need from us, God, we offer it to you. We thank you, Lord, knowing that you're enough and we can trust you. We pray in Jesus' name.